Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz tells us how to take care of our finances in the month of May. Michelle Singletary shares her experiences with helping family members financially. Russ Kennel talks about cryptocurrency's role in fund portfolios today. And Morningstar CEO Kanal Kapoor highlights recent trends among investors. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, has created a month-by-month financial to-do list for 2021. She's here today to discuss what should be on that list for May. Hi, Christine. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. So for some of us, May is going to be a little bit more hectic than we might have originally expected because the tax filing deadline for 2020 has been pushed back from April 15th to May 17th. What should we be keeping in mind with that? Right. It gives us all a little bit of extra time to prepare our returns. I think the IRS has been deluged itself. And so it decided that with all of the chaos related to the pandemic, that uh, wanted to give people this extension to get their to get their tax information in order. One of the key things to know about this, Susan, though, is that people who are paying quarterly estimated taxes still needed to have those estimated tax payments in by April 15th. And most of the states uh, require, if you're paying to your state, uh, those quarterly estimated taxes, you would be required to have those funds in by April 15th. So check with your state treasurer's office to see what the see what the rules are. In most other respects, those state income taxes are on that May 17th deadline as well. I also want to point out that this uh, May 17th is the deadline for making those last minute HSA health savings account and IRA contributions for the 2020 tax year. So you're really bringing it down to the wire, but you do have until May 17th. So on your original to-do list for May um, was emergency funding. And, you know, a lot of people think that emergency funding is just something that people who are just starting out need to think about. But that's not really the case, right? It's not at all. In fact, Pew Research released this report uh, back in 2020 looking at emergency fundedness and found that this problem really cuts across income bands. So naturally, people with lower incomes do have a hard time amassing emergency funds. So about three-fourths of people at lower income levels said they didn't have three months worth of living expenses on hand. But about half of middle-income folks said they did not have three months of living expenses, and about a fourth of higher-income people did not have that three months worth of living expenses. So I think sometimes people confuse the fact that they have high incomes with the fact that they have a buffer. So I think it does really underscore the importance of making sure that your cash reserves are up to an appropriate size, no matter what your income level. So three to six months would be the absolute minimum, but higher income folks would want to set their target higher. So so how much is enough in emergency funds? So you say three to six months. So if you are a higher income earner, what should you be thinking about? Yeah, that's a good starting point. But I do think that 
You want to think about if you were to experience unexpected job loss, how long it might take you to replace that job. We know that people with higher incomes are often in more specialized career paths. Those positions can take longer to replace. Higher income jobs in general can take longer to replace. So I like the idea of setting the target higher, uh, closer to a year's worth of living expenses if you're a higher income earner. I always say that if you're the sole earner in a family, that also argues for having an even bigger cushion because you don't have another person's income to fall back on if you were to lose your job. Um, older adults, I think, too, should probably set their targets higher because it often takes them longer to replace jobs that they've lost, and they might also fall into that category of higher income and or more specialized career paths, jobs that we take know take longer to replace. And Christine, where do you suggest that people invest those emergency dollars? Well, I would keep them very liquid. So you'd probably want to use some sort of a cash account. You have to settle for really, really low yields today. But the idea is that you wouldn't want to have the money invested in anything where you might incur a loss if you needed to get your money out. A separate question, but related, Susan, is this idea of which account type to use. And generally speaking, I would say people should use taxable accounts, so non-retirement accounts for their emergency savings. So those would be accounts where they could get their money out without any strings attached, where you wouldn't pay taxes or penalties. The one exception would be a Roth IRA. And I sometimes think that this is a good idea for people just getting their plans off the ground, younger people who are sort of conflicted about whether to build an emergency fund or save for retirement. Well, Roth IRA in a lot of ways lets you do both in that you can put the money in and ideally let it grow all the way until retirement. But if you need your money out prematurely for some non-retirement expense, you can get those contributions out without any taxes or penalties for any reason. So just the contributions, not the investment earnings. But that's a really nice escape hatch and gives the Roth IRA a nice sort of level of multifunctionality. So, Christine, you also think it's important to develop a broader contingency plan for financial emergencies. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's worthwhile to think beyond just having the emergency fund in place, but also think about a broader contingency plan in case you lost your job. So you'd want to think about how you can skinny down your budget, what items you might cut out of your budget if you had some sort of an income disruption. Think through health care coverage. If you have employer-provided health care coverage, what would your plan B be in case you lost that position and needed to get health care coverage elsewhere? And then I think also it's worthwhile for all of us, regardless of life stage, just to think about about backup career planning. So is there something that's sort of adjacent to our current job that we may be able to do to continue to earn income while we're looking for a full-time replacement job? So that might be some type of consulting in your field. You may be able to earn some sort of part-time income to keep you going. So just to think through all of the other aspects of job loss, uh, just in case that you were to experience some sort of unexpected income disruption. Let's talk a little bit about retirees. Do retirees need emergency funds? 
This is controversial, but I would say yes, in part because even though job loss isn't an issue when you're re retired and you may have mapped out all of your regular ongoing expenses, there are still uh, unexpected expenses that crop up in retirement, whether car repair bills or vet bills or big home repair bills. So think through those and set aside assets to cover you so that you are not needing to invade your long-term portfolio to cover some of those unexpected expenses if they should crop up. And they inevitably will. Um, and, and lastly, one other thing on your May to-do list, uh, specifically for right retirees, is for them to check their cash reserves. So what should the cash reserves look like and how does that relate with the emergency fund? It's related for sure. But Susan, you know, I'm a big fan of the bucket approach to retirement portfolio planning. And part and parcel of the bucket approach is having liquid reserves set aside to cover you for one to two years worth of portfolio withdrawals. And the idea there is that you do have those liquid reserves so you wouldn't need to touch your long-term portfolio. And I think the other side benefit of having those liquid reserves is that it provides peace of mind. We know that the markets encounter periods of volatility. Bonds have even undergone a little bit of turbulence so far in 2021. So the idea is that if you have those liquid reserves set aside, you can really be able to put up with the volatility that is likely to accompany your long-term portfolio. It's just important to remember, don't overdo this piece of your portfolio because returns, as we all know, on cash investments are really, really low today. Well, Christine, thank you so much for giving us our marching orders for May. We appreciate your time and we'll talk to you again this time next month about what we should be thinking about for June. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz and Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary discuss her new book. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Many financially stable people may wish to help loved ones who are struggling financially. Joining me to discuss what can often be a sticky situation is Michelle Singletary. She's a Washington Post columnist, and she's also the author of a new book called What to Do With Your Money When Crisis Hits. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Let's uh, start with something that you emphasize in the book, and you do cover this topic about how to help loved ones who are struggling financially. One thing you say is to just start with a self-assessment. If you want to help someone else, take a look at your own financial situation and make sure that you are actually equipped to do so. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a big believer in who too much is given, much is required. But you got to make sure that your financial house is stable. And the more you have, you might sort of feel like, well, of course I have this extra money. I've got this retirement account. But you really need to look at what your needs are first. Make sure that you're secure before you give out of your extra. And so it's it means that you you got to know your numbers. You have to understand, like, for example, if you're older, how much you have allocated for health care, long-term care. If you don't have long-term care insurance, you got to make sure that part of money is 
investment. And then when you do that, when you've assessed it and says, yeah, I've got some extra, then you start to think about how can I help my adult children, my grandchildren, extended relatives, siblings. I know for myself and my family, I'm, you know, I've got the good job. And so there is a lot of demand on my salaries and savings from family members. And my husband and I have set up a system by which we help folks. Um, and it is very, <laughs> I'll have to say, it's pretty intense. And, and, and for a reason, there's a practical reason behind that. Because once your relatives and friends and adult children know that you've got a system in place, they're not going to just come to you with willy-nilly stuff, right? They're going to come with uh, when they really need the money. And that's what you want to hope for. Well, let's talk about this system. You wrote in the book that it is important to have a conversation about the person you want to help's financial situation. So you need to get, as you call it, a little bit in their business. Let's talk about that because you want to be sure that actually you can help and that you're not just putting a Band-Aid on what is, you know, an ER type situation. So let's talk about how you go through that assessment. Yeah, and, and you know that's such a great question, Christine. Because when you are, when you have done well for yourself, um, most of the time you do want to help, and that's such a great thing. But you don't want to enable bad behavior. And so one of the things that my husband and I do is we say, okay, let's look at your financial situation. What got you here? That that doesn't mean that you're not going to help somebody who say was reckless, but you do want to make sure that the money that you're going to be giving is going to actually lift them up. And as you say, not just put a Band-Aid on it. For an example, one relative came to us and was behind in their mortgage and wanted us to help them catch up. And normally, you know, that's not like we wouldn't do that, but I looked at her financials and I couldn't see how she was going to keep the house, even if we helped her. And so I said to her, I said, I don't see your way out. You just can't afford this at this mortgage level. And if I give you this money in a couple months, you're going to be in the exact same place. And that's like throwing good money after bad. And it was a very difficult conversation. Um, a close relative, love her to death, you know, and she, you know, she cried. I cried a little bit. And you know what ended up happening? She did end up keeping her house because I said no. She went back to her mortgage company. She started to work with a HUD approved housing counselor and they figured out a way to renegotiate her mortgage toward a more affordable payment. So that, that forced her to work the situation out herself to a much better deal than if we had just given her the cash money. And that's what I'm starting to say. And I know it is a difficult conversation to ask somebody to open up their books to you. But if you went to a bank, that's what they're going to do. They're going to ask you, let's look at your debts. Let's look at your income. And you need to do that as well, because you want to be sure that the money that you're pulling out of your retirement account, hopefully you're not doing that, but maybe your savings, that you're going to make sure that money is going to be well used by the person who needs it. Speaking of banks, are, are people who are making uh, extensions of financial help like this better off considering it a gift or a loan? How should I approach this if I'm the giver? That question comes up all the time. You always, this is a hard, fast rule with me and my husband, you always make it a gift from the start. I do not believe in lending money to people for it. It just creates all kinds of issues. And 
especially if they can't afford to pay you back. Now you've got feelings hurt and you don't want to ask for your money. They don't want to talk about it. And you really sever the relationship. So that's why I say that you need to do your assessment first to make sure you're giving out of your extra. And if you give out some extra and you can afford to miss that money, you can afford to tip them, you know, not giving it back. And so, for example, we did have a relative. He was changing jobs. His wife lost her job. And so we helped them with a mortgage payment. And on the memo note, I clearly said, because they kept saying, oh, we're going to pay you back, even though we told them they didn't have to. And I said on the memo, this is not a loan. And I ne- we never talked about it again, we never asked it, and, and we did the assessment with them. And so we were confident that, that this was a one-off thing, that they just needed a little bit of help and a little bit of push in that moment. And um, so you don't give a loan now. If they want to give it back later, you want it back, okay? But you make it crystal clear. And if you cannot afford to lose that money, then that means that you can't afford to lend that money. Assuming that uh, I've gone through this process and maybe decided that it's not ideal to extend financial help either because it's just a bad situation and my financial help won't really make a dent, or maybe I've decided that it's just not good for my own financial wherewithal. Can you share any tips on other ways that I might be able to help? So maybe I'm a financially savvy, financially well person. Are there any other types of help help that I might be able to extend other than just pure financial assistance? Yeah, and I, I, I want to also say that no matter what you and I say, because I think we're on the same page as this, that people are still going to lend money. And then the book, we, uh, we walk you through, okay, you're going to be hard-headed, not going to listen to me, but here's what you do if you do in fact lend. You should write up a contract. It should be clear. You should have regular business meetings with this person um, so that you know where they are. And if they find to the point where they can't give it back on the schedule, then you renegotiate and things like that. Now, how do you else help? You might be able to help in smaller ways. Like we've had instances where we've paid people's utility bills, or I make sure that I keep a resource list. Like in the book, there's a bunch of resources, including Morningstar, because you guys do such a great job of helping people do their retirement accounts. And so I send them right to you about your articles. Um, And so then that's one way you can help people to give them the information that you had to get you in the good financial position that you are. And I keep like a file of resources like Morningstar, bankrate.com, WashingtonPost.com. And I say, go here, read these things so that while you're trying to struggle to get your life together, you have better information so you don't come back here again. And so, again, you can find little ways to help them pay their utility bills, maybe pay their cell phone bill, things that you can manage. Um, And ultimately, you might actually ask them to come live with you. And I know that's a big thing, um, but uh, you can see this great big bookcase behind me. My husband and I uh, purposely built a home with extra space because we always wanted to have a space for people in our family who needed a place to land. So of all the years we've been married and we've had a home, I would say probably half of the time we've had someone live with us at one point or another, sometimes short term, a couple of months, sometimes in the case of a relative for three years. Um, And we have a plan. We sit down with them. We go 
over their financial. So it is a, it's not the goal to just move in here and we just sort of figure it out. We have a plan set in state. And I truly believe that, especially in the economy that we've had because of COVID and the pandemic, because guess what? This is going to be over and another crisis will happen. And so you want to prepare your, I believe, if you have space and space in your life, if you can't give them money, that you give them a place that they could live. And Multiple generational homes, I, I'm a big believer in sharing your space as a way to help other people when they get stuck financially. You've talked a lot about your personal experience with giving and helping family members. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how you and your husband have incorporated this into your budget, because you've told me that you have incorporated ongoing assistance to family members into your budget. So how did you do that? And when did you start doing that? And maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, how it's really a, a way of life for you. It is definitely a way of life. It's something I learned from my grandmother. My grandmother, Big Mama, took me took uh, a set of her grandchildren in, which my siblings. It was five of us. So my sister was eight, I was four, my sister was three, and twin brothers who were just two, uh, about two years old. And so I learned from her about giving back. And so from the time I got out of college, in fact, I was taking care of my disabled brother and I took care of him um, until he passed away at age 32. So at about 22, I had a 20 year old brother who I was financially responsible for. Uh, and then after that, you know, my grandmother, when she became, you know, um, ill, my grandfather, when he got lung cancer, I helped take care of him. And currently um, my godmother, who is on a fixed income, just living off of social security, um, with my husband and I send her money every month for all her medical co-pays. So she doesn't have to worry about that. And it's built into our budget. So every month is part of our mortgage and our tithes and our savings and retirement and kids college fund. It's the money that we send to her every month and we pay it just like you pay a bill. You know? And then we also have created what we call a family and friends bank account where we designate a bank account that, that when we have extra money and things, we put it in there so that when people in our family need that, that's where we pull it from, but we got rules, right? We help with college. We help with a down payment on our home. We help if you've lost your job through no fault of your own and you're trying to get by. And many people who are listening are probably doing really well for themselves. And I just would encourage you to create a system so that you can help your adult children and your grandchildren. And here's what you shouldn't do, because you're in a position, probably you've done well for yourself. You've got a really nice retirement account. You've got a savings and emergency fund. You probably paid your house off. You're doing well. If you're a morning star regular, you've done all the things that you're supposed to do. What you don't do, however, is teach that to your adult children and your grandchildren. Time and time again, I find the generation who did well didn't really pass that knowledge to their children or they overindulged them. I mean, you're the grandparent paying for the private school for your grandchildren when your adult children are living way above their means. That's not helping them. You work so hard to do what you did and you're not 
adequately passing that on, that financial um, legacy to your adult children and grandchildren. And I quite frankly think that is a shame. Um, I want you to be generous, but not so much so that you enable them that they can't get to where you are. They don't have money to save for their retirement fund or their kids' college fund because you are enabling them and you aren't saying no when you should say no. Well, Michelle, it's always great to hear from you. I'm always inspired by talking to you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Next, Susan Jabinski asks Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services about crypto's role in funds. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have been making headlines, but have they been making their way into fund portfolios? Joining me today to discuss that topic is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So how common are cryptocurrencies in fund portfolios today? And do you expect to see sort of an uptake in, in cryptocurrency plays in 2021? Well, it's interesting. At this point, you don't see any uh, direct cryptocurrency ownership by mutual funds uh, because of the challenges of liquidity. A, a, a mutual fund is a daily liquidity vehicle. And so to put something where you clearly cannot uh, sell and, and uh, turn that quickly into cash into a, a 40-act fund is, is a problem. Uh, so what you, we see instead is uh, indirect ownership and I think that's only going to increase. So there are various plays that you can own uh, in lieu of actual uh, cryptocurrency. And I think that's certainly going to grow. And what are some of those plays, some of the ways that funds are getting exposure to crypto? Mm -hmm. uh, there are things like uh, Grayscale uh, Trust is, is one. Uh, and there are some other indirect plays, um, various, various uh, stocks that might have some play, you know, obviously. Uh, even Tesla is indirectly a little bit of Bitcoin right now that they own some Bitcoin. Uh, and you can see that uh, some funds clearly are buying some of these names for the indirect Bitcoin play, even if it's not the majority of a company's business. So let's talk about a little bit about some of the bigger names that maybe have dipped a toe in some way um, in the crypto pool. Um, let's start with Morgan Stanley Institutional Growth. That's a fund that has been. Um, playing around a little bit in that pool, right? That's right. Uh, they filed and, and are considering adding a small uh, bit of exposure via Grayscale. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because uh, Dennis Lynch's fund had massive returns last year. So it's one of the few funds that really doesn't need to uh, hype itself up uh, with Bitcoin, but they view it as a hedge. They kind of think it as a uh, updated version of gold as a hedge. Uh, but I think it's clear that they want to keep a very smaller time, about 2% or less in the portfolio, which I think is important because obviously if you add a really volatile uh, security to your portfolio, that can dominate the portfolio, even if it's only say 10% or 20% of the portfolio. So at 2%, you figure, well, it's really not going to have a, a dramatic impact. And what are some other examples of funds that have either, you know, filed, to, added this to their perspectives that they are able to do this or funds that are actively engaged in um, investing in crypto indirectly? 
Well, I'm really interested in uh, Emerald Banking and Finance because they didn't change their prospectus, but now they're 23% uh, crypto plays, including uh, private placement uh, that, that gives you crypto exposure. Uh, they've got grayscale. They've got a, a wide array of, of uh, Bitcoin. And, and if you look at their top 10 holdings, uh, you see gains from, uh, they're all up more than 100%, uh, some up more than 10,000%. So, you know, even though it's 23% of the portfolio, really the tail is wagging the dog. And, and if you think about someone who might have bought the fund for uh, regional bank exposure, I don't know if they want this big uh, crypto play. Obviously, so far, it's been great because uh, crypto has been doing really well. Uh, but it's really interesting to see uh, a fund like that, whereas others have uh, very tepidly taken steps to filing or, or filed to uh, have some exposure. This is one that hasn't even changed its filing, uh, but has just jumped right in. Wow. So what are the risks here, Russ? I mean, obviously it's, it's adding vol- you know, volatility to a portfolio. Well, what are things investors need to be thinking about with this in their funds? Yeah, well, I think obviously crypto is a very unpredictable uh, type of security. Um, it's, it's new um, and to a fair degree, a little like gold, its value is whatever people perceive it to be. You know, it's not throwing off uh, income like a, like a company or a bond. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, very volatile. And, and then on top of that, of course, uh, any of these indirect plays uh, have already gone up a ton. So uh, you know, de facto, you're, you're, you're paying a big premium for these more liquid uh, indirect plays. So I think there's a, a fair amount of risk. Um, and, and I think it, obviously we're just in, in an unknown area. Let's, let's touch briefly on Coinbase, which is a platform for trading cryptocurrencies that recently went public. Um, what do you think the uptake is going to be among fund managers with, with that particular stock as a crypto play? I think it's going to be huge. Uh, now you have a very liquid play that's a direct play uh, on crypto. Um, and so I think you're going to see a lot of growth funds invest uh, in Coinbase. Um, if you think about it, growth managers like to be part of any big trend. Uh, they want exposure. And really there's been very little ways to, to uh, get Bitcoin exposure or, or any kind of crypto. Uh, now there's a huge way that's very liquid. Um, I expect to see a lot of growth portfolios from a lot of the big fund companies own it as we start to see uh, portfolios from after this date. So as funds over time start to, you know, get more exposure perhaps to cryptocurrencies. Do you think this is going to have any effect on our fund analyst ratings for for these types of funds? Uh, Well, we already downgraded Emerald because of its big bet, uh, which I I think is is, uh, outsized. You know, beyond that, it's kind of hard to predict. I don't think necessarily if, say, we see a growth fund with 2% in Coinbase, I don't think that necessarily uh, implies a change in the rating. And again, you know, it's not that we're predicting the direction of crypto. It's simply we recognize that there's some liquidity and volatility challenges uh, when you buy, particularly outside of uh, Coinbase. I think uh, there's some some real risks there. So it's a little hard to predict, but I'm certain that we're going to see more and more uh, crypto exposure in mutual funds. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today. I think this is a story that you and I will be talking about quite a bit over the course of the next year. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. 
I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, CEO Kunal Kapoor shares what Morningstar is doing to empower investors. I thought today I'd spend a little time talking about three trends that are empowering the investor. So the first of those trends is that the pool of investors is growing wider and deeper. Think about that for a second. More investors across the board. So deeper and wider. Real or perceived barriers to entry are melting away with frictionless trading, dropping of fees all the way down to zero in many instances, fractional shares, and democratized access to data and insights. You have ideas such as banking as a service, BAS, come to life. You have firms like Elevest, which appeals to female investors, driving a very focused way around which they're bringing their value proposition to investors. And then you have the allure of new things such as cryptocurrency that are drawing a crowd and, ge- and basically generating a shift in deeper kinds of investor activism. All of that is still true. But if you look at Google search queries over the past year, you'll see a surge in terms such as learning to invest, what is investing, how to start investing. They're up more than a third since January of 2020, just reflecting the growing interest among investors. Even on our very own Morningstar.com, where we obviously measure traffic very, very closely, we've seen not only a notable engagement in in, in the demographic of 25 to 34-year-olds, but in the 18 to 24-year-old demographic, we've seen a surge of nearly 150% of visitors to our site. So our team is meeting that demand with new kinds of investing content, and and designed specifically suited for those who are starting out, because we believe we have a chance to empower and help these investors succeed. But what have I learned now looking at this a year later? Possibly the most important lesson that I think we're all witnessing is that tolerance for the establishment has evaporated. Tolerance for the establishment has evaporated. There is no better example or deep interest around this than in the GameStop mania that I know all of you have probably been paying attention to. The Reddit board is an in-group phenomenon that that successfully mobilized itself against traditional Wall Street. And in this context, even Robinhood, which Kathleen referenced earlier, is part of the establishment almost overnight, demonstrating a shift in both investor perception and investor power immediately. This event alone was significant in demonstrating the ripple effect of an organized few. On our Morningstar sites, for example, GameStop stock pages spiked from a really, really low average, about 500 page views a week at the end of the year, to more than 62,000 in the first week of February. You, I, and others were paying attention and were galvanized to look at exactly what was going on. In fact, the impact was felt across our entire site. But what you can see is that the surge in interest in GameStop and AMC, whose stock pages basically surged more than 6,500 and 2,500% respectively, 
were far, far greater than other stocks like Apple, which had an interest surge of more than 50%, Facebook, 80%, Coca-Cola, more than doubling. Those would be great numbers, but you look and compare to what you were seeing and completely, completely, it looks like a smaller picture. So investors are more emboldened to use their influence with their pocketbooks and their proxy votes to affect the change they want to see. Investor demands are being driven by the, are, are be, are, investor demands are in fact driving out the long held notion of shareholder capitalism. That's what you probably studied to, to a certain degree in school too. And that core thing, and I learned this at the University of Chicago too, is that shareholder returns should come first in favor. And, and what's happening is you're seeing a rise instead in favor of a duty to all stakeholders, not just shareholders. That includes employees, customers, and communities. There aren't many industries that haven't been caught up in what's called the cancel culture this year. And no matter what you think of, it's a new landscape for every kind of firm to navigate. Just look at what happened to celebrity endorsed vegan milk darling Oatly. Got a little prop here because we're Oatly drinkers in our house. Such a friendly brand. On one side, this package belongs to who? This is the boring side with calories. It's exactly what you would expect from a brand that's trying to stand out in that grocery aisle. You might even recall its Super Bowl commercial this year, which was fun and, and, and enlivening. But when Oatly announced last year that it was taking an investment from private equity firm Blackstone, there were all kinds of questions related to whether Blackstone had links to companies that were responsible for deforestation in Brazil. There were even questions about whether CEO Schwartzman's donations to the Trump campaign should draw scrutiny. All this was coming from a group of Oatly consumers who identified the brand in a certain way and felt that because of their action to take that money from Blackstone, that trust and engagement had in fact been broken. Now, I personally think Oatly's response was really well done and an important case study in the value of authenticity. You should take a look at it if you haven't. And the firm's now headed to an IPO, but not without realizing the role of the investor and a sharp, sharp eye for managing reputational risks related to ESG. And ESG and the power of investors really are coming to fruition through shareholder resolutions. Last year in 2020, 186 ESG-related shareholder resolutions appeared on proxy ballots for US companies. Average support was 28%, with 20 ESG-related resolutions achieving the support of a majority of shares voted, breaking the record of 14 set the year before. These are small numbers, but they're beginning to add up. More importantly, 67 of the 186 ESG-related resolutions received at least 40% of the overall vote of minority outside shareholders. Think about that and see where the trend is heading. So what you're asking? Well, more investors and higher engagement among them are only positives, but they come with a real imperative for leadership from all of us. These new troops of investors need the right guides. They need sound education around long-term fundamentals and how to safeguard against predatory practices and hidden costs. 
We've always taken this responsibility seriously at Morningstar to advocate for investors and illuminate the trade-offs and pitfalls before them. And we'll be doing even more to serve up our long-term investing insights and tools to this rising generation of new investors. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.